last week, just to, to catch up just a little bit so we can all be on the same page, we talked about in Genesis 1 verses 2, there's this Hebrew phrase that says, tohu vabohu, uh, this Hebrew phrase, and it's a phrase that says that the earth was formless and void. If you read the NIV, it says the earth was uh, you know, void and empty, or, or formlessness and void. It's just, it, w- it can mean confusion and emptiness. It can be nothing like like chaos and uh, voidness. It's, it's this phrase that talks about this, like God creates the heavens and the earth, but they in this state of chaos, of almost disorder. And the story of creation is God exercising his power and ability to bring the chaos into order. And so you see the six days of creation, this almost iterative process of God exercising his creative ability into the chaos and disorder and bringing about order and goodness and fruitfulness. Um, so tohu vabohu, this, this place of chaos, this place of disorder, this place of emptiness, but God is a gardener. Uh, as even as we said, the Lord planted a garden. God is a gardener. He takes barrenness and through his activity turns it into fruitfulness, into something beautiful. Um, and so we talked about, about like the desert and the wilderness being turned into the Garden of Eden or confusion and emptiness being turned into beauty and fruitfulness. And Jesus himself which is really profound, the very first sighting of Jesus after the resurrection, the very first sighting of Jesus in his new creation form, like how, that's not the right theological term, but in his resurrected state, Jesus is seen by Mary Magdalene, who's making her way to the tomb. He sees Jesus, she sees Jesus, and she mistakes him as a gardener. And you can think that's just like a happy accident, like, you know, Mary's mourning, she's confused, you know, maybe there's tears there, she's stayed up the whole night, and she's walked past, and Jesus is sitting there, and you're like, oh, can understand Jesus was sitting there, he's just like resurrected, maybe he was looking tired or something. I don't know, like maybe you can think it was like a happy accident um, that was happening. But I mean, most of the theologians say it is very intentional for John, who starts off the book of John with the creation narrative, is ending the book of John with the new creation narrative. And who is in the garden? Who's in the new creation garden? Jesus the gardener, Jesus, the one who himself is going to exercise his power and will and creative ability to bring about the chaos within humanity because of the brokenness of this world. He's gonna exercise his power through his resurrection work to bring about the new creation life. And then we said, the other thing that we learn from the story is that man and woman is created in the image of God. You get to Genesis 1 verse 26 and it says, and God created them, male and female, um, after his own likeness 
or uh, the, the theological phrase is this Latin word, imago Dei. It's, uh, it's a theological phrase that um, theologians use when they want to describe this idea that we are created in the image of God. We are created after the likeness of God, which means we don't just have capacity to have relationship with God, but we have capacity to act on God's behalf. And that's what he does. He leaves Adam and Eve to rule in the garden, to exercise God's own creative ability in some sense, his, to exercise God's activity in the world to bring chaos, disorder, barrenness, brokenness into order, beauty, and fruitfulness. So that's kind of like just a quick intro, all okay? If you weren't here last week, that was a very short uh, introduction. Uh, but now I want to get onto something else from that narrative that hopefully will help us understand ourselves a little bit more. Uh, Don, you can get to, you can go two ahead. So this is a, a verge in Durban. Um, not the best looking verge. So, you know, one of the things that's really fascinated me is driving around my neighborhood and looking at verges. I don't know why it fascinates me, but I really am fascinated by people's verges. And I'm fascinated by how in the same street, you have some verges that look incredible, like the next picture. This, is the, this guy's name's Peter, next. This guy's name's Peter, and... Four years ago, Itaquini had a competition. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but Itaquini had a competition. It was the drive to try and get citizens to take ownership of their own city. And during this, the, the idea of this competition was to, for people to beautify their verges. And they gave a prize to the person who had the most spectacular verge. That was the guy that won it. He won the best verge in Itaquini. How's that guy? And, um, um, but what's, a, <laughs> I know, <laughs> looks very ornery, but uh, apparently his verge is spectacular. We're only getting a snippet of the, that. Um, but a fascinating thing happened in my neighborhood once, which I, I found quite fascinating, is someone decided that they were going to renovate their verge in our neighborhood. There was just one road down from us and I mean, they went all out. They like redid the wall of their, their, you know, their boundary wall. They redid the plants. They put in these palm trees on their verge. By the time it was done, it was spectacular. Like, it was amazing. And then someone on our WhatsApp group, because you know there's WhatsApp groups, like security WhatsApp groups, if you're on them. Someone in the WhatsApp group now starts complaining about their verges. They're like, what is the law behind planting palm trees on your verges? And I'm like, are you serious? Like, is this person, like, is this person serious? Are they like worried about this palm tree? I mean, we have people breaking in like every night in our neighborhood and this person's worried about this palm tree on this person's verge. And then they keep on going like, oh yeah, and this and that. And it's like becomes this long thing. And then someone 
perhaps something like, hey, I think the palm trees are really cool. They do something cool for our neighborhood. And then this person, yeah, but are you allowed to just pull down another tree? Like it went on for a whole long thing on this group um, over someone beautifying their verge. Um, now, I use verge as, as a, a brief illustration because we're talking about gardeners in one sense. Um, but I think I've been really fascinated by how some people do a lot to make their space incredible. And some people do a lot of complaining because their space isn't incredible and their neighbors is. Some people living in the exact same space with the same means, with the same, you know, access to everything, you'll drive down that same road and some people will have this amazing verge, always well-maintained, and some people's verges will always be terrible. Why? Why is that? That is the question that goes through my mind when I can't sleep at three in the morning. It's like, why? Why is that not happening? So, I want to talk a little bit about going back to this idea of agency. An agency, or a divine agency, which we'll talk about, is our ability to choose and act. And for those decisions that we choose and act upon to affect change around us. Agency is our God-given ability to make decisions to act, and for our decisions and our actions to actually affect change, to make a difference. And uh, for this morning, we want to look at just one part of this, and I want to look at the part of this which is our choice, our choice. I call our choice the divine gift the divine gift. God gives Adam and Eve something really powerful in the garden. He gives them really something really powerful. And what that really powerful thing is, is this. He gives them choice. He gives them choice. He puts two trees in the garden. Without those two trees, would Adam and Eve had a choice. He gives them a decision. He gives them an opportunity to make a decision, a choice. And not only does he give them the opportunity to make a choice in their lives, he gives them the opportunity for that choice to have an effect on their lives. He puts two trees in the garden and he says to them, hey, eat of this amazing tree, you will have a flourishing life. Don't eat of this tree, you know, because then you'll know good and evil and things are not gonna look good, you will surely die. And true to humanity, what happens when someone tells you not to do something? Like Adam and Eve, boom, they eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil. And it has an effect. It has a knock-on effect. That's the story of the scriptures told, not just on their lives, but on the lives of the rest of humanity. But the real, the gift in the garden is that he gave them choice. They had the ability to choose, to make a decision, for that decision to have an effect.
as some theologians say, he gave them agency. God is the ultimate agent, but he gave those created in his image agency. This ability to choose and to act and to affect one's life through their choices and their actions. Now, I understand if you are theological, there's a whole tension that has been written about since Augustine. So probably for the last 1800 years, theologians have been writing about the tension between agency and sovereignty. How does that work? We're not gonna explain that today. We'll leave that for another big theological discussion. Um, and it's a really big discussion, which is why for 1800 years, the church just hasn't quite been able to button this down. And it's, it is a bit of a mystery. But what we do see in the scriptures, we do see choice and we do see sovereignty. And how do they work? That is a difficult one to answer. But for this morning, we want to just look at the choice aspect. The fact that God has given humanity choice. And that choice is a divine gift. And we'll land on why I think it's a divine gift. But another verse, Moses is writing and he's writing on behalf of God in Deuteronomy. And uh, he says this, he says, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to his ways. Here in Deuteronomy, we have Moses calling the, the Israelites, he's calling them as they're heading towards, this is right near the end of their journey, as they're heading towards the promised land, they, Moses is gonna pass away, um, they're gonna be on the verge of the promised land and as the story goes, Joshua will take them in. But before this, before Moses passes away, we have this moment where Moses as the prophet speaking on behalf of the God, of God is saying, hey guys, I have given you choice here. I have set before you life and death. I have revealed to you my ways and your ways. Which way are you going to choose? He has given them choice. We, we head on, Joshua's taken them. The story of Joshua is a fascinating story. I think it has a whole bunch of ramifications for our present. But the story of Joshua is such an interesting one. Joshua takes him in. Uh, he takes him into the promised land. And uh, you know they fight off all the enemies. They inhabit the promised land, they're there, they're present, they're in that space. Um, and then as they get comfortable, they start doing their own thing. You know, Joshua's got them there, they've, you know, they've obeyed God, they've got into this place, they've got into the promised land, they're there, they're comfortable now. And as they're comfortable, they're like, ah, look at this, this is great. We're gonna do whatever we want to do. And Joshua, by the end of the story, I mean, this is the hero Joshua, the hero who has conquered 
enemies, the hero who's taken them into the promised land, the hero that has obliterated all of their enemies, inhabited those spaces in which they were going to space. He's there pulling out his hair and he says this. He says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua gets to a point where he can't force them to do anything. That's as part of his frustration at this point. He may have led them to this point, but part of his frustration is that he can't actually force them to do something. They have to choose it for themselves. They have to make a decision for themselves. They have to make some sort of choice. And Joshua, in his frustration, gets to this point where he says, I am going to choose God. You now need to decide who you're going to choose to serve. Me and my family, we are going to live for God. What about you? What are you going to choose? He's calling them to this fact that they as human beings, like no one can actually ultimately force them who they are going to give their lives to. He highlights the decision he's made and then calls them to choose. As we get on into Galatians, uh, you know, Paul says this really interesting thing in Galatians, which is essentially choosing how you use your choice. Um, in Galatians 5 verse 13, it says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free it's that call. You're called to be free. You're free, guys. Christ has set you free. You are free. You can do whatever you want in one sense. Paul says in Romans uh, 10, he says, he says, all things are permissible, but not all things are beneficial. He's like, there is a freedom that is given to you. It's this freedom of choice. You were called to be free, but... Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather serve one humbly, one another humbly in love. Paul highlights the freedom that they have and then calls them to restrain their own choices. To restrain their own choices so that their choices would not be self-indulgent but would be serving, would be loving, would be generous, would be giving themselves. Paul highlights that, hey, you have a choice. I'm not taking away your choice, but I'm asking you to restrain your choice. The reality of living a good life is being able to restrain our choices. It's being able to shape, direct our choices. Living, um, if you've ever read the book Gilead, it's a really, really good novel uh, by Marilyn Robinson. It won the 
Pulitzer Prize in 2004. Uh, she's a Christian author, one of the very, very few Christian authors to win a Pulitzer. And uh, she, she opens this book. It's a book about a pastor and it's quite deep and slow. So if you, if you read like Lee Child and that's the only book you kind of read, Gilead is going to be as boring as can be, like so boring. But it's philosophical and deep and well-written. And the book opens like this. It's, a, it's this pastor guy writing to his son and he says, my dear son, I want you to know this, that there are many ways to live a good life. There are many ways. But living a good life, you and I would look, you and I would look different in the way that we would live a good life. We would do different things because our circumstances are different. But one thing that would be key to all of us living a good life is that we would have to restrain our choices. You would have to restrain your choices. You would have to, as I said there, as Paul highlights, you would have to choose what you choose. We can choose to wake up tomorrow and decide I'm not gonna go to work because I don't feel like it and I'm gonna lie about it, boom, <laughs> who cares? You know, like we, we can choose to do that. You could do that, you might do that tomorrow, don't do that, I'm not advocating for that. You could do that, but actually living a good life requires us to restrain our choice at times to make sure that we choose what is good, what is serving, what is loving. Sorry, we're carrying on on this idea of choice. One of the things, I'm gonna read a very uh, quoted passage, but uh, God calls us to choose to do good even in extremely difficult circumstances. So you've probably heard this passage before, especially um, in Harbor City, if you've been around here for, for a long time or uh, listened to anything from Tim Keller. Um, you've probably read this passage. It's from Jeremiah 29, and it says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those are carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of this city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. One of the things that I really like about that passage is you, if you were around Harbor City last year, remember we went through the series called The Rebuilders, and we talked about the post-exile. But when we said what would happen in exile is the Israelites were taken into exile. They were forced into exile. They were not living in Babylon by choice. And remember, like Nebuchadnezzar, he was a brutal tyrant of an empire leader. He wanted to smash every bit of your culture out of you. You weren't allowed to speak your language. You weren't allowed to practice your culture. You weren't allowed to do any of that kind of stuff in Babylon. 
like he wanted to destroy your national identity until you assumed the Babylonian national identity. He was brutal. That's why he, he destroyed the temple. He destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He destroyed any kind of space in which they would have ties back home. He wanted to destroy that, bring all their best people into Babylon, and when they were in Babylon, for them to assume a Babylonian identity. He was brutal. Now, you've got Jeremiah prophesying. Prophesying to this group of people and who feel crushed, they slaves, in this land, they're feeling crushed, they've had their identity smashed, and now God speaks to them, and it's like, hey guys, guess what? Build a house, chill, plant a garden, get married, throw a party, seek the prosperity. Like telling someone to seek the prosperity of the space in which this space has destroyed every bit of their prosperity, just seems absurd. And yet, here we have, in a difficult circumstance, God calling the Israelites to do good, even in difficulty. We're called to exercise this choice to exercise choice in difficult times for good. If God's people take after him and we are like gardeners in one sense, then we are people that are able to go into spaces that are difficult, that are painful, that are chaotic, that are empty, that are barren. And as God has exercised the agency he's given us to bring about fruitfulness and beauty and order. That is essentially what he is calling the Israelites to do in Babylon. Hey guys, go and be gardeners in the city that doesn't care about you. Go and exercise your divine call to bring about his prosperity in a city that doesn't even care about it. The question, I guess, for us this morning is, how are we exercising our own choices? What choice are we making? I like that word choice because a lot of the time we go through our days actually making very little choices. I don't know if you've noticed that. Like we, we go through our days almost on autopilot. We just do this thing, carry on doing that. We're just like, oh, dun, 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 dun. and we haven't actually consciously made any decisions. We've just like kind of acted or felt the pressure of someone, you know, like, and you're just like, okay, yeah, you're feeling the pressure, you're feeling the peer pressure or the mood or the tide, and you just like kind of go along, but you haven't actively made any decisions. But the question is like, what decisions, what choices are you making today? 
we have the ability to choose to do silly little things like eat too much today, and I do that too often. Um, <laughs> it's, a pro it's one of my choices that I need to restrain. You know, we, we have the ability to drink too much, to spend too much. We have the ability to be selfish. We have the ability to sleep, be lazy, to choose to do nothing. We have the ability to get up and help, to engage, to read, to pray. How are you exercising this gift that God has given you, this gift of choice? How are we doing that? We often think of ourselves, we get into this mode of just like, I'm just part of the system. I'm just, you know, just going on with things. But at some point, we have to stop and remind ourselves that one of God's gifts to us, to you, is the ability to choose, to not just go down the tide of life, but to exercise agency on your life. I want to tell a story, a quick story, and then I'll read a scripture and we'll close. Um, this is a story of my bad choice. Um, so you'll see a picture now. This is, I wish this was the picture of, of the car, but um, this looked just like a car that I borrowed uh, about 16 years ago. So 16 years ago, I was asked to be part of a team uh, that would take a number of, uh, we'd take a number of cars, cars like this, and we would go up to Mozambique, and um, we, we went to different parts of, of Mozambique and Malawi um, to go and help train church planters. And there were five of us all uh, borrowing cars and there was a team of 20 of us and all crammed in these, these five cars with like tents on top and stuff and boots packed. And we went on this mission trip and it was amazing. It was really great. And then the final day, uh, of driving, we were racing border posts to try and get back, and uh, um, and then by the time we'd got to a place, we'd got through the one border post, we had to race the next one, knowing that we weren't going to have a place to stay, so we were going to try and get home, and it resulted in us driving for 26 hours straight, so it was brutal, like long. We drove for 26 hours straight. Uh, Eventually got home at about two, half past two in the morning after dropping everyone off. And when you've driven for that long and you've been on a long trip, like you are tired. So I remember driving that car in, being like finished, zombie walking to my bed, sleeping till my alarm went off because now we had to give the cars back the next morning. So we're all meeting back at the church to give the cars back. And uh, so I drive into the church and to my shame, I park next to this other Bucky that is perfectly clean. Like it is spotless. It looks like it's been waxed. The inside has been vacuumed. It's unbelievable. 
I drove in a car looking like that. And with shame, giving the keys over to the person, feeling so stupid because I was parked next to this other bucky that was incredible. And I looked at the guy and I was like, how? He was like, Jamie, you never give someone's car back dirty. You have a choice. You could have woken up and cleaned the car or you could have given back a dirty car and you never give back someone's car dirty. He says, so I woke up, I washed the car, vacuumed it, went to the petrol station, filled it up with petrol and then drove it in. And I was like, it's on empty. <laughs> I didn't even put in petrol. Like, I was like, oh no. I felt terrible. Like, it was like one of the low moments of my life because your, your own like apathy in one sense has, has just been like highlighted and exposed to this whole group of people. And yet this other guy just like, I'm tired, I'll go sleep later. But you never give a car back dirty. And uh, I, I mean, I felt so convicted. I'd driven into that parking lot feeling like a hero. You know, like we drove 26 hours, we served the gospel, people are gonna be waiting for us, clapping, cheering. Instead, I got hammered. Um, but it was a very, very good lesson for me that day. Because I was justifying myself. I knew I probably shouldn't have taken it back that dirty. But I was like, we drove 26 hours, people will understand. People will understand. And they probably did understand. But what I learned was that one of us exercised their ability to choose, their agency, and one of them didn't. One of them set their alarm earlier, and one of them didn't. And it was me who didn't that day. But it made me realize that one person can get out and make their verge look so incredible that they win an award, and the other person can leave it so that it's overgrown and never cared for. One person can get up and fix a leak of water, while the other person can sit and just leave it to drip all day. One person can look at a problem in society and get up and begin to make a difference while others can just moan at the people who are trying. Like, what is the difference between those who do it and those who don't? It's agency. It's this thing that God has given you and I this choice and this ability to act in a way that makes and affects change. He has given you choice today in how you're going to live your life. That you can be like me and complain and moan that you drove so long that you couldn't get it done, or you can be like the other person who decides this is important. I'm going to shape and restrain my decisions around that which really matters. And then this amazing thing happens. Philippians says this, therefore my dear friends, if you have, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation 
with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. I love this passage. It's been one of my favorite passages uh, through my reading of the scriptures over the years. I love this passage because it highlights the tension of agency and sovereignty in some sense. It highlights this tension that Paul says. He says to them, hey, you work out your salvation. Do something. And then he says, and when you do something, you're gonna find out something that God is at work in your life, causing you and helping you to do that. But he never allows them to get away from this. You go and do something. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your faith. Live it out. Make good decisions. And as you do that, you find that God is the one behind the scene who is blowing into those good decisions so that you make them. He's blowing into them, giving you the strength to make them. It is this tension of agency is that God is at work in the world and he's using us to do, accomplish his purpose and cause the kingdom of God to, uh, you know, roll out. God is at work as the ultimate gardener bringing about new creation in the earth and he's using you and I to do it. But he calls us to make a decision in doing that to work it out, to do something. And as we do it, to realize that God is the one who is at work in us as we are at work in the world. Can I pray? Lord, I pray that you would I pray, Lord, that you would just help us have a realization of the agency that you've given us, that you have given us this ability to choose, to choose life, to choose to follow you, or in your parable, Jesus, to choose the narrow gate. And I pray, Lord, that we would, as people, begin to take ownership of our decisions, restrain them towards your will. And as we do that, as we look to you, Christ, I pray, Lord, that you would shape those decisions, but also that you would be the one at work in our own decision-making process, that we would see that you, God, are at work with us. We see that you, God, are the one helping us. That you, Christ, do not just leave us to go and do, to work this salvation out, but you are the one who is at work both in the willing and in the acting, both in the desiring and in the working out. pray, Lord, that you would help us even as Mary Magdalene got. Help us to see you as the new creation gardener, the one who is tending the earth to bring about new creation, 
And I pray, Lord, that we would be, as your own agents, working out new creation in this world. In Jesus' name.